Uh, as a great philosopher, Mick Jagger once said, you can't always get what you want, but you can get what you need, right? And uh, what you want is your thoughts, and what you need is your feelings, right? And he was able to dichotomize it like that. Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Mad Happy Podcast. Producer Phineas here. Today we have another expert on the show. Mason has a really compelling conversation with Dr. Igor Gallinker. Dr. Gallinker is a psychiatrist, clinician, and researcher with a specialization in bipolar disorder, suicide prevention, and the role of family in psychiatric illness. He is the Associate Chairman for Research in the Department of Psychiatry at Mount Sinai, Beth Israel, the founder and director of the Family Center for Bipolar Disorder, and of the Mount Sinai Suicide Research and Prevention Laboratory based at Mount Sinai. He is also a professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine in New York City. This is somebody who we wanted to have on the show because of his unique perspective on these illnesses. As you know, with this show, we spend a majority of our time telling personal stories about mental health. Every so often, we are privileged to have on an expert in a specific area that we want to explore. In this episode, Mason and Dr. Gallinker dig into their personal journeys with mental health. Mason speaks about his childhood. Dr. Gallinker opens up about his own childhood experience and what brought him to this work. And they just have a really vulnerable conversation about bipolar disorder, suicide prevention, and many other things. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Without further ado, the Mad Happy Podcast is brought to you by Optimism. Enjoy the show with Mason and Dr. Gallinger. Where are you joining us from today? I am in the Family Center for Bipolar Disorder in uh, Manhattan at 46th Street and Madison. Nice. Do you, uh, do you live in the city out there? I live in uh, Irvington, north of the city in Westchester. Oh, nice. My uh, mm-hmm. One of my best family friends ever uh, grew up in, in Irvington, so I'm, I'm very familiar uh, with the area. How did we get... Uh, connected or or how are you familiar with uh, with the brand or how do we cross paths i run two enterprises Uh one is the um suicide uh, prevention research lab Mm -hmm. at mount sinai uh, beth israel and the other one is the family center for bipolar disorder in midtown and um uh, uh our work is innovative in both places but particularly in suicide prevention Mm-hmm. And in the course of uh, me uh, describing my work in uh, uh, one of the talks, somebody approached me very excited and uh, said that I can, I must introduce you to these people in that happy. Oh, my God. Um, and so they did. And I, I think I met your founder. Uh, we had a brief conversation. And then oh, we scheduled, we scheduled uh, this um, uh, podcast. Oh, that's great. Well, uh, just to give you a little bit more context um did you speak to my partner was it noah or a payment of who you spoke to okay nice um well yeah we started mad happy a little bit over five years ago and i think it really was born out of this uh idea of like mental health and 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 struggling you know i i come from a very blended family um my father left me and my mother when i was 
six months old and then I, I she remarried this guy who raised me who became my stepdad um, who had two kids of his own and then they had uh, two kids and it was very blended and, and, and I had a very turbulent childhood with a lot of uh, emotional abuse and, and just instability and, and that really led to kind of a lifelong battle with a major depressive disorder and, and anxiety for me and um, was never really good in school and, and always really struggled but kind of had this creative gene in me and, and really used that um, to start to make clothes and, and, and express myself in that way. So Noah and I actually started another company before Matt Happy, I don't know if he told you, um, where we you know, we're just hitting the streets of downtown LA, uh, trying to like uh, learn the fashion industry and, and make things. And that ultimately ended up failing, but it was the biggest blessing because out of that, um, Matt Happy was born in this moment where I was really battling a bout of depression. I, I, I was regretting dropping out of college. I had no direction in my life. I was I was abusing drugs and alcohol. And, and I thought of this word, mad happy and it and it was so powerful in the moment of of giving myself permission to be struggling and be suffering and going through a hard time and i felt such a shame reduction of 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 all of the um sort of insecurities and and struggles that i had been facing my whole life and just kind of flipped the script on it to embrace it and understand that it's a part of life and really invited in to see what i could learn from it about myself and each other and, and all these things. And that was sort of just the kernel of the idea of Mad Happy. And then in the last five years, we've really tried to build that as big as it can be and, and, and really create this mission around creating conversation around mental health and, and spreading positivity and optimism. And, and it's been amazing to see our community grow and, and the movement grow. And, and obviously, you've been hard at work at that for decades now and, and, and have really dedicated your life's work to it. And it's extremely inspiring um and i'm very excited to talk to you so thank you so much for coming on and i just wanted to share a little bit about my story and and a little bit about the history of the brand well thank you for having me i'm certainly will be very happy to contribute um and uh, because obviously i dedicated my life to working with mental health and specifically with the most uh, dire consequences of uh, uh mental health problems yeah uh, which is suicides and uh uh, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned uh, optimism. Um, just on Saturday, I gave uh, uh, another interview. Uh, uh, somebody found me through another podcast uh, about optimism and how I see it in the current age. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting topic, how to remain optimistic. The way that we always talk about it is that there's so much in life that we can't control, right? We're, we're born into this family, into this environment, um, all these things that really significantly impact um, mm -hmm. sort of our psyche and like how we view the world. And, and rather than focusing on those things that are out of our control to really focus on our mindset and how we can wake up and really approach each and every single day. And, and obviously there have been such amazing studies about uh, manifesting and, and the power of positivity and, and how our outlook can really have such a positive impact. And you know, I feel like there's a lot of spirituality involved in that, especially for me. Um, and yeah, I think it's been a really, really powerful tool that I think people have responded to uh, in a significant way. Um, really, I think because of just the, the tumultuous time that we're in as a society and as a as a species, uh, really. But how how do you view uh, optimism in that lens? Well, um, I have to say <laughs> uh, that uh, I I 
I'm a pessimist on a societal level, but I'm optimist on an individual level. Uh-huh. And uh, I also believe that we uh, actually live in uh, increasingly dark times. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think we're heading backwards historically uh, um, towards uh, Middle Ages and maybe even farther, uh, uh, farther back in terms of societal structure. But on an individual level, I feel exceedingly optimistic that uh, you know people can fight uh, successfully uh, the uh, despair and the pessimism that comes with it and the depression that comes with it. And I specifically can successfully uh, help people uh, overcome their depression, anxiety, and uh, often, not often, but sometimes desire to end their life because life has become unbearable. And uh, that uh, uh, the uh, methods and approaches that we have developed um, are actually the ones that are, are going to turn around the tide of suicide in the United States specifically. Mm. Have you seen just in light of the dark times that you mentioned as of late, um, I'm sure that's led to a significant rise in mental illness and, and people who've been struggling, especially as late, obviously post-COVID and, and things like that. Is there anything that you've specifically noticed in the last few years that, that maybe people are struggling with more or things that you've been hearing? Well, the things that I've been hearing is that uh, even people in um, EMS say that they have never seen a mental health crisis like this one. Mm. Um, and it's uh, really unparalleled in the last uh, you know, several decades. Um, that's uh, like on a very vernacular level, if you if you wish. Yeah. Um, uh, on uh, more of a uh, on, on more scientific level, twenty five percent of uh, uh, Americans, young Americans, had suicidal ideation at one point in, uh, or another in the last year, which uh, you know says a lot where we live. Surprisingly, though, uh, and to some, but uh, probably not to me. Uh, actually, the suicide rates and suicides went down during COVID. Um, and I thought it would, it would be temporary. And uh, because when we uh, humans individually society, and societally hit calamities and natural disasters, people rally. Uh, and uh, kind of inst- survival instincts kick in and fight or flight responses. And I think that gives people strengths. But uh, those were off. And so in the last year, in 2021, post-COVID, uh, the suicide rate went back up to where it was in uh, 2017, uh, which was the highest year, almost almost there. So what what can we actually do? Because I think we, we hear that it's a mental health epidemic all the time, and I think we always uh, talk about it on this show, and I think we've been very careful with our role as a brand in terms of uh, what we kind of do and how we show up. You know, I think we always say we're not professionals uh we don't give advice you know like we're just looking to speak from our own experiences and and create conversation and create awareness but i think that that can only take you so far obviously and and that's part of why i love having professionals like you on the show um obviously i know that it's a very complex answer but but how do we start to sort of tackle this this epidemic and this mental health crisis and and really start to make progress on it well, there is a societal level and individual level, right? As I mentioned before. And um, I'm not going to uh, maybe mention in one or two sentences in societal level what can be done. 
and it is uh, there um, obvious structural changes in the American society, uh, such as disappearance of the middle class, the income inequality, the racial issues, um, then contribute to uh, the current crisis. That uh, the uh, social media algorithms that I'm sure you're aware of and uh, the books written about it uh, uh, foster um, antagonism uh, and negative content. So that needs to be changed on a societal level. And um, um, on an individual level, when people pursue causes like that, it makes them feel better. So that will help with the mental uh, health crisis. On the, in, uh, also on an individual level, uh, the different uh, ways to address mental health issues and uh, specifically serious mental health issues like uh, depression and, uh, you know, suicidal states, uh, which uh, uh, actually we have, a, we addressed as uh, essentially terminal mental illness or potentially terminal mental illness. And it's a very different approach. Uh, that once you uh, have that uh, and uh, change the um, the focus of suicide prevention uh, can save um, you know thousands of lives. I love how you break it down in terms of the societal and, and individual because it seems like a lot of these societal things that are in place are, are really big mountains to move that I think almost really seem insurmountable because of the way that they. Uh, inflate the economy or how profitable some of these endeavors are that are really um, benefiting off the mental health of its users, which is the the American people, the, the human race, or really just the global population. I, now I understand why you're such a pessimist on the societal level in that way. It, it, it almost seems insurmountable. And then that's where we come back to the individual level of really people uh, taking control of, of their own lives and feeling empowered in that way to actually make a change. But it, it, it yeah, I mean, it, it, it just seems very tough when you break it down like that, that there's just bigger, uh, bigger issues at play that almost seem like we'll never have a chance to really right those wrongs. And, and in some way, it is just kind of the byproduct of the modern age that we're really living in and, and the negative toll that it's having on, on human lives. Uh, yes, well, I'm less pessimistic on a societal level than you just said, okay, <laughs> because, uh, you know, certain uh, people can legislate uh, and, uh, uh, you know, when um, assembly lines uh, uh, eliminated uh, mom and pop uh, shops in the 19th century, uh, there was a rise in labor unions that controlled, I mean, uh, the level of stress and the, the work level that those brought up. And similar approach can be used now to uh, reverse some of the things that are being done by, uh, you know, technology and uh, and uh, also reverse income inequality. So uh, I think there is a there is a you know a potential uh, uh, there there roads to success there, but on individual level on individual level, I think general emphasis on mental health that you have, and the increasingly um, vocal and uh, loud and widespread conversation about mental health, I think is uh, uh, is going to uh, really make a difference, and it is making a difference already. Like to give you an example, uh, I would I would imagine that a lot of the suicidal ideation that uh, that you hear is actually people 
uh, talking more and discussing more what they have, which does not necessarily uh, transition uh, to the suicide, or even suicide attempt, but results in more uh, uh, support services and uh, 998 line, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know that one of your uh, fields of study is the family role in in mental Mm -hmm. health issues uh, specifically, and we can get into that a bit more, uh, but I was wondering about your specific family and and upbringing and how you really ended up in this field in the first place. When did you know that you wanted to become a doctor and, and really dedicate your life to mental health? Actually, fairly late in life. Yeah? Um, yeah. This is my second career. And uh, I grew up in, uh, uh, in what is now Russia. And, um, you know, I'm Jewish. So in, in uh, Russia, uh, Jews are kind of uh, noticeable from, um, you know, from a distance, uh, the way African-Americans would be known uh, here or in Norway. And uh, so in order to, and it's an anti-Semitic culture. So um, my whole life, I was kind of trying to, my childhood, uh, I was trying to find ways to make it really, okay, in any way, uh, against the discrimination, against, uh, you know, uh, closed institutions and uh, schools that you couldn't get into. And for that reason, really, I became uh, a chemist in, in, uh, when I was living in, in, uh, in Russia and at, uh, at 18 because I could, I could get into that school. That was the only reason. And so then I immigrated when I was 23, and I continued on that path because, um, you know, that's what I knew, and it's a new country. Mm-hmm. But uh, about three years in, after getting a PhD and becoming a professor, I realized that I actually don't need to do this. <laughs> right. The reason I realized that is mental health, because I was doing everything that I was supposed to be doing I was in the best school, I got the best job, and I really was quite miserable. And I was depressed, as uh, you know, as mm-hmm. you revealed about yourself. And then I looked into it and um, realized why. Uh, um, and this is when I turned to medicine and to psychiatry specifically that helped me to get out uh, of that um, dead end, unfortunately. And uh, so and uh, uh, now I'm on the yellow brick road saving lives and it's a i have to tell you night and day yeah wow that's that's an amazing story when you were experiencing a sort of that uh lack of fulfillment um in your 20s uh when you changed careers was that the first time that you had ever dealt with something like that or or was it sort of a foreign feeling to you or were there like instances in your childhood where you were able to maybe recognize some of those uh, symptoms or or how did you sort of cope with that uh, the first time i actually didn't know what it was yeah uh, I was there, actually, I was at Purdue University at the time. I was an assistant professor, and, um, you know, I was supposed to be feeling great. But uh, somehow I wasn't. And uh, I couldn't understand why. So it actually required talking to somebody to understand why. Yeah. And uh, uh, then, I, uh, then I, at that moment, I realized the power of words. And uh, that, uh, that was the beginning of a big turn towards medicine and psychiatry. Yeah, I feel like so many people, it, it's so hard for them to understand mental health until it happens to them. Even someone hearing about uh, your story, oh, this guy has nothing to uh, complain about. He he has the best job. He, he's making money. He's successful in his field, all of these things. What is it about just humans and, and, and 
our psyche that sort of allows us to get into those places and like why are our priorities i guess so out of whack where on paper we can have the most perfect life but then maybe our feelings might be the complete opposite i'm not sure anybody asked me um, that question before i would uh, go to the basic conflict uh, or uh, duality of human existence and it's the conflict between thoughts and feelings and um uh, as a great philosopher Mick Jagger once said, you can't always get what you want, but you can get what you need, right? And uh, what you want is your thoughts, and what you need is your feelings, right? And he was able to dichotomize it like that. And uh, so we can have all kinds of ideas about what would make us happy. And uh, the reality is that we have no idea how we're going to feel when we are in that point. Uh, the one of the most frequent examples that I see, kind of the most striking, not frequent, is that uh, somebody has an idea, let's say, of a perfect woman in mind, okay, and uh, keeps searching for that perfect woman or something really, until uh, he, in this particular case, would find that perfect woman, and uh, the perfect woman turns out to be near death sentence. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, you can't, uh, not only he can't stand her, but it also puts you in a situation uh, that, uh, you know, we're uh, of no win, because you were dreaming something all your life, so you cannot give up the dream, nor you can tolerate the fulfillment of that dream. And it's a very tough situation to be in that many people find themselves in. Yeah, I think for me, like, uh, it makes me think of just our relationships with ourselves and and when i almost think of my own life and and what i've wanted or what i've thought that i've wanted and and it's been things that sort of other people or movies or my parents or like other things have sort of structured for me and i feel like we just sort of resign to that so often as people that like so many of us don't even really know ourselves or don't even take the time to think about what what do we actually want or what are we actually like or like who are we so that when we are thinking of that perfect woman it's like it was that just the woman who i saw when i was eight years old on on tv like when i got my first direction and like that's what i thought i wanted or is it actually what i'm into because i've asked myself these questions and i've learned about myself and things like that and like that's where we have to go back to the individual level of of really everybody listening to our own feelings and and weighing those against our thoughts to really be able to judge like what kind of life do I want to live? What kind of person do I want to be? And and I feel like so often that goes really unchecked just because we're in the busyness of life of, all right, I, I have to do good in school. I have to get a good grades. Then I go to college. Next thing I know, I have this job. And it's just like you blink and then you're just an adult and your whole life is already formed, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, every week I see a new patient in the hospital uh, and part of the, uh, uh, the uh, suicide research and prevention lab routine and uh, let's say uh, it just happened so over the last several weeks I saw four or five uh, young women with exactly the same story and the story was uh, that um, the parents wanted them to succeed Uh, they went to school Uh, they tried to succeed in school they tried to skate in school and they absolutely hated school and yet they they were doing everything possible to become professors Mm. And uh, there was no understanding of what was driving them. 
And uh, all of these women, uh, I think four or five of them, uh, were uh, admitted after suicide attempts. That's a, that's a very, very frequent situation. So fortunately, um, uh, those were not uh, fatal. Then the, you know, the team came in and were able to decipher for them uh, uh, that uh, which uh, they ended up in essentially in, uh, in a trap of their mm-hmm. own creation mm-hmm. or their parents and their own creation. And when uh, people feel entrapped with no exit, this is when they become suicidal. And when it comes to issues like that, do you think that's more of like a, a parenting thing that's that sort of case by case on the nurturing of children or is it an educational thing or, or where can we sort of course correct things like that? For many people, I mean, for many parents, particularly in the United States, um, you know, the children are almost uh, an achievement in itself. Uh, their reflection of their own narcissistic needs. Uh, and uh, and uh, children are raised uh, in a way that uh, the parents would uh, basically sh- show them off to themselves and everybody else, regardless of what that they may feel. And uh, this is this is uh, lack of parenting skills, really. Do you think that there are any cultures or countries that you've seen uh, that maybe do a little bit of a better job of this, that that are sort of setting the standard for parenting or or nurturing their children in that way? Or do you feel like it's sort of a collective issue that that we all face globally? Uh, We face it globally, but there are certain countries uh, where it's a lot worse Mm. Um, uh, that uh, that come to mind. Um, And uh, the the one that the most... uh, visited most recently is Korea, okay, and um, um, where everything is about achievement and everything about climbing 48, uh, you know, uh, steps of social ladder that exists and been there for hundreds of years, and nothing else else matters. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In in the Eastern world and and Asia specifically, I know just uh, when we talk about, um, you know, bringing mad happy to the whole world, just being sensitive in different cultures and different regions, how uh, so much of what our brand talks about is is completely treated completely differently around the world, right? So while while I may feel like oh I like I live in LA, everyone takes their mental health seriously and and it's about wellness and all of that. Um, other countries are obviously so much further behind, and 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 it's going to take even more years of work to really break those hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, built up like like you've said well you don't need to go to korea for this uh just uh, um uh i have a couple of um, i actually have uh, two foreign uh, uh research uh, postdocs working in my lab one is from italy one is from lebanon and they are stunned and how openly mental health issues are being discussed in the american uh, lay press and media uh it is much more subdued and hushed even in Italy. Yeah. And it's not too far east. Well, I, it's nice to know that America is doing something right then. Yes. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, back to the family role, I'm just wondering if you could speak on that and, and how vital that is. I know for me in, in a lot of the therapeutic work that I've done, really understanding uh, where I come from and what my parents' childhoods were like and, and what their parents were like and, and, 
the major traumatic events in their lives and any addictions that they've struggled with all really have a direct impact on who I am and, and how I am. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit on, on the importance of that family role and, and how it's not just like a singular problem, like black sheep kind of situation. Um, family is uh, absolutely critical uh, for uh, actually for development and uh, for happiness. And in fact, American individualism uh, in, uh, is misplaced and ends up in loneliness in old age mm. because extended families are being broken up. And unfortunately, uh, some of the uh, uh, most critical concepts in mental health and in medicine uh, foster that. And uh, one of them is HIPAA. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that, right? Yes. Okay, and HIPAA, which is an an act that uh, 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 allegedly or ostensibly uh, facilitates communication, but uh, actually in reality puts up walls in communication because you can't talk to anybody who is not in HIPAA, and you end up in situations when somebody, your loved one is hospitalized, and you call to find out how they're doing, nobody's going to tell you. And this is how we ended up in the family approach. Um, several, maybe 20 years ago, I met a family. A woman walked into my office and um, because she was totally distraught, she had uh, the husband who was bipolar and uh, the husband was divorcing Christians, was very upset. And he was manic. And she wanted to uh, find out what medications he was on and speak to the psychiatrist. And the husband said, no, you can't talk to me. And when she called the psychiatrist, psychiatrist said, well, find your own psychiatrist if you can't deal with this because I'm compliant with HIPAA. And they had four children. And each of the four children had their own therapist because those people have means. And there was a family therapist. And so with the seven professionals taking care of that family and nobody was talking to each other. And uh, that was just so absurd uh, that at that point uh, uh, I had an idea of creating a a family center and family approach to treating mental illness, specifically bipolar disorder, and that we've been practicing for 20 years now and know how it works. And uh, the outcome uh, is um, pretty uh, dramatic if you listen to patients, but also um, in our experience, because in our family center, we don't even take individual patients. We only take families. And at uh, the outset, uh, everybody waves um, uh, uh, HIPAA and everybody uh, communicates with each other openly about medications and symptoms and serious issues. And uh, that results in several things. I mean, one is you're never alone. Okay, two, a lot of um, uh, problems and that uh, sometimes drive people to suicide results from family conflicts, particularly in the young people. And, um, uh, and those, uh, by handling family approach, we force the solution for these problems. Okay. Uh, they happen right there in the office. Nobody is isolated. Um, so that would be, uh, let, let me mention these, uh, these two things that are absolutely critical in the family. And the other thing is that um, for instance, we rarely hospitalize people because most people don't need hospitalization, even if they're in acute episode of bipolar disorder or depression. 
And uh, uh, because if they have a family member who is there for them, uh, you really can avoid the whole traumatic experience of hospitalization because you work together with your doctor and two family members. People take medications. People come in and out. You can call. You can Zoom. And very, very rarely we hospitalize people. Like I have uh, maybe four families right now with uh, either depressive or manic episodes. Uh, when we work together on uh, making uh, people feel better uh, with medications and therapy, nobody's in the hospital. Yeah. Is there any uh, legislation being written or, or movements that have started to sort of counteract HIPAA or? Not terminology. Uh, speaking about industry interests, they're probably stronger, as strong in HIPAA regulations as they are in um, uh, technology world and social media. Your family center sounds incredible and i know it was definitely something that i could have used a lot as as a kid i think you know i had five brothers and sisters and i was the one who really kind of struggled the most and and was sort of labeled as that black sheep like i said and i think growing up i obviously didn't understand that everyone had their own role to play in this situation and it was sort of just like what's wrong with mason and like everyone just like looking at me in the middle of the circle and um sort of staying out of it and and it wasn't until my adult life where I was able to do like a family weekend at, at, at a treatment facility that I went to where even my own like siblings and my parents, you know, they they thought they were just a showing up for like, let's go help Mason out or like, oh, we're going to show up for, up for Mason, obviously. And it's like, no, you all like everyone has their own equal part in it. There's no one who's better or worse or, or anything than anybody else. Like we're all a family unit and we all have like an equal contribution to this dynamic and i feel like just that little piece of information it seems seems obvious telling you now but i feel like so many people don't realize that and 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 kids who are struggling just feel more alone and isolated and different and misunderstood and like all these things that i know pulled me further away from the people that i'm supposed to be the closest to instead of like just opening up and and really bringing everyone together absolutely absolutely and in the family center Usually there is an identified patient that comes in, Mm -hmm. but it's not the identified patient that we're ending up treating quite often. (laughs) Three years down the road, uh, uh, it turns out sometimes I I treat, uh, I routinely treat three generations of the same family, uh, but a couple of times I treated four generations of the same family, certainly parents and children. And, uh, you know, somebody comes in and turns out uh, they get better, but the wife Okay, the brother gets worse. So we work with the brother. And, um, you know, uh, most of the time, not 100% of the time, but most of the time, uh, it works out for the best, brings people together. That's why generations come back. Yeah, I think it's something that I've really been trying to do lately in in my work is just sort of like, you know, almost put put a stake in the ground and like stop the generations of trauma and 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 things that have trickled down to me and and I've really had a lot of empathy for my parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents who I don't know but have just heard about of of you know everyone you'd hope that everyone does the best that they can do with with what they have and like we all only know what was modeled for us so I think that understanding my dad's childhood and how his mom and dad were to him has like now opened up the door for me to maybe understand a lot of the things that 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 he didn't know how to manage or deal with and took out on me in this way to really understand that like 
you know, he was just doing the best with, with what he had. And I feel like it's been huge for my parents to show that humility for me um, to sort of just like bridge the gap and, and, and not have to be like this parent child dynamic, but really just human beings who have our own trauma and our own struggles and, and who can really relate to each other. And, and I feel like that goes back to your piece of just like communication with, uh, with the ones that we love the most when I feel like it's, it's kind of, Oh, communication is critical. Yeah. Uh, most of my family work uh, is actually improving communication. Yeah. And it's, it seems so so simple on paper, but uh, when you break it down, it's like, no. It, it, why isn't a father telling his son that, like, that, that he's having a hard day? Then, like, it'll make the son feel better about the hard day that he has instead of having to, like, act tough all the time. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it seems just like our, our constructs are, are so backwards for for keeping ourselves happy. Yes, communication uh, is important. A lot of people just um, don't have a concept uh, of what communication is. Um, just today, I talked to somebody who is a very accomplished uh, a person who has uh, um, you know, conflict with his partner, and they're about to talk about how to resolve this conflict, and I listened uh, to him, and... Um, uh, most of, uh, and, and, uh, it, it was a monologue on that person's part. And I tried to explain to him that, uh, you know, uh, if you can't listen to me right now, how can you listen to your partner? Because you're continuously engaging in monologue, trying to prove that you're right. And, you know, we didn't get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to talk about suicide just for a moment. I know that's been such a part of your life's work and I feel like you know that's maybe the most taboo or the hardest thing for people to wrap their minds around when it comes to this conversation on mental health I think people are scared to even bring it up or talk about it and I know that's part of uh, what kind of works against it Um, and I'm just wondering for you off the bat you know how should we talk about suicide how can we be uh, raising suicide awareness in a respectful way um to sort of help with everything that's going on in that regard especially as like a brand like us you know we're not professionals um how do you think that just us and and everyone could be doing a better job of having that conversation and 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 not having to be so scared of it all the time well um suicide prevention is uh uh one of the two things that i've done professionally that are different and outside the box and makes so much sense like just as, as I described to you, how family approach makes so much sense. Um, and uh, how talked about suicide, it's also um, uh, uh, pretty, uh, what, what I think about uh, what I'm about to say uh, would sound obvious and yet uh, very different. The, um, so let's try to change the f- framework a little bit. You see, um, the centerpiece of our approach to suicide prevention is asking a person if they're suicidal and uh, asking to tell them truthfully, to tell us truthfully when they're suicidal. Um, So if somebody is indeed suicidal, like suicidal to the point they may take their life for real, it's not a gesture, it's not a call for attention or anything, it's like real. The pain is unbearable. It means that they're in the worst moment of their life that is about to end, if this is real. And in that situation, we 
expect a person who asks a question uh, whether they're suicidal to answer truthfully what's happening uh, and what they're planning. And in fact, what you ask them to do in this stage to accurately diagnose their condition, their suicide risk, and their medical condition, which is uh, more dangerous and has higher mortality than schizophrenia, than uh, bipolar disorder, than anything. So we never uh, ask people with schizophrenia to diagnose their own schizophrenia. We never ask people with bipolar disorder to diagnose their bipolar disorder. And yet, we ask people uh, who are suicidal to tell us exactly how and when they're suicidal. Hmm. This is pretty absurd if you think about it. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And this is a centerpiece uh, of our suicide prevention strategies at the moment. Now, 75% of people who died by suicide never told anybody they were suicidal and explicitly denied in their last interaction with health professionals or anybody else that they're suicidal. So by asking this question and relying on uh, some semblance of a truthful answer, we miss 75% of people who are never there. Just, uh, 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 this is absurd. So, uh, I lost uh, one patient to suicide uh, uh, when I was a young uh, practitioner in about 1993. And um, the last, I, I, I treated him for a year, and he had a catastrophic event happen in his life he couldn't get over. And uh, over a, a, a year, um, uh, we were talking, trying to uh, actually give him a reason to live. Um, and then eventually uh, uh, what happened is that uh, he killed himself. And after he died, uh, I got a, a letter from him in a package a, a week after he died. And he said, Doc, uh, you're really good dog. Don't blame yourself. I just couldn't take it anymore. And the last week, I lied to you. I lied to you. I planned it all along. So the most important thing here is that, uh, again, he never told me he was suicidal. Twitch, I mean, who just, uh, you know, uh, uh, killed himself, uh, was having dinner with his family, and he was suicidal. So uh, suicidal mental state uh, is, a, is really a mental illness. It's a short-lived mental illness, but it's a mental illness. It's a dangerous mental illness. It's a mental illness that can be described, seen, if you know what to look for, treated, and, uh, uh, and people will be saved that way. And it is not a failure on somebody's part. It's not a weakness. Okay? It is unbearable mental state that people are in uh, that is uh, as painful as you know, broken arm that never goes away. It's broken neck that never goes away. It's, 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 and uh, as I mentioned before, is that when you feel trapped, okay, um, uh, it means that there is no solution to this mental pain, mental, mental anguish. So in our work, we describe this state. Okay, it's actually very, it's so, as objective as depression and as objective as a panic attack. If you know the symptoms, uh, you can diagnose it. You can see it. Just like you can diagnose choking victim. And uh, whether somebody is telling you that they're suicidal or they're not, or they may not yet feel suicidal, if they have it, this illness needs to be treated, and that's going to prevent suicide. That's our approach. And, and what are those symptoms? Well, um, 
the abbreviated way uh, of um, uh, there are five criteria for the syndrome, mm-hmm. um, which is at the moment under consideration for inclusion into DSM. If you know what it is, uh, it's actually yeah. in the committee at the moment. Um, and it took a thousand pages of research to basically uh, have it described and, uh, uh, and submitted. So there are five criteria. And mind you, suicidal ideation, meaning uh, uh, I'm suicidal, the answer is not part of it. And uh, because, not because it's not there, it may or may not be there, but you cannot rely on it. So uh, the first is, uh, question is, if somebody comes into your office and I'm a doctor, or you talk to your friend, and uh, you, you feel uh, uh, that you're concerned, the first question is what this situation that you're telling me about right now, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that you know, makes you upset, or brings you here to my office if you're a doctor. Do you see any solutions to it? Is there any options out of it? Or you feel trapped? And uh, is and if the person says, I can't, I mean, there's no options. Uh, there is no solution to this. Like, I've been having this pain for 10 years. Nothing works. There's no, no hope. So that's criterion A. That's the first one. It's 50% of the syndrome. So the second question is, when you think about this, what, whatever it may be, uh, uh, the woman that you lost, the medical school you didn't get, get, get into, whatever, the physical pain, the bullying, uh, do you, is it painful to you? Do you, feel, do you feel emotional pain? And the person said, yes, that's a second criteria is met. The third question is, uh, if you feel, uh, uh, so this situation that you f- makes you feel pain, when you think about it, do you feel can you can control your thoughts or your thoughts are controlling you? And you feel like you're going into a rabbit hole and it gives you pain in your head. And if uh, people say, no, the thoughts are controlling me and they know exactly what you mean, that's the third criteria. The fourth one is that does it happen at night and can you sleep? And the fifth one is are you able to, uh, were you able to tell anybody about it? Do you keep it to yourself? So if these five criteria are met. This is the, what we call suicide crisis syndrome or SCS. And if somebody in it, uh, whether they tell you that they're planning to kill themselves or whether they're not planning you, uh, they're in imminent danger. And you, need to, and you need to treat it. And it can be treatable with medications. And so uh, our current research, we finished, uh, the, uh, uh, we described the syndrome, it's been replicated, it's the same uh, in you know, uh, 25 countries. Uh, it's like, and throw it against the wall, people are the same everywhere. This is how they feel. And now we're starting studies uh, to treat it and uh, to implement its assessment everywhere. Uh, in fact, I'm going to Hungary in March. I'm going to Chile. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the world. It needs to be implemented here in the U.S. It needs to be treated. So we just, it's just a final push uh, to have it done, to have it accepted. And I think since 75% of people don't tell you that they're suicidal, if you identify half of them and you treat half of them, it's 10,000 people a year in the United States alone. So uh, that's, I think, this is the hope. You can call it individual hope. You can call it my individual hope that I can help. You can call it societal hope because we'll save a lot of people. Yeah, I think I think it's clear based off what you just said. Obviously, we cannot put the responsibility on the 
patient to let us know sort of their state of mind and, and whether they have a plan or not. I'm, I'm curious for typically people in SCS, how long do one of those uh, episodes typically last? It is hours, uh, hours to maximum uh, days. It's very short-lived. And uh, if you talk to people who have these experiences, they know that suicidal urges come in waves. And the wave passes, okay? And if you treat the wave, it passes because it's treatable. Uh, then uh, the danger passes, and you can engage them in treatment. But when they're in this state, when they have SCS, uh, they cannot think rationally because they're in a rabbit hole of these thoughts that they can't control, and no psychotherapy is going to work at that moment. You need to treat it first. It's like you have a broken arm. You need to kill the pain. Then you can talk to somebody. You cannot do psychotherapy with somebody in acute pain. Yeah, I have I have one um, experience that I went through where I had lost a relationship and, and a girl that I was so in love with and I, I had put all of my self-worth and happiness into it and, and I screwed up the relationship and, and I was so depressed for for weeks and and I started going to these 12 step meetings for sex and love addicts anonymous because I realized that I had this love addiction and I was so depressed and 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 I was starting to be consumed by this suicidal ideation and I actually um went to go buy a firearm and and I was totally in this moment of SCS now that I hear you say it right like I didn't feel like myself I I totally wasn't in control of myself and and when I left the store almost, I, I that wave passed and I was absolutely scared shitless of, of what had just happened and, and, and who had taken control of my body. And, and I immediately went and asked for help. And then from that moment, I went to I went away to treatment and, and, and I've sort of been on this road to recovery ever since. But but I, I perfectly understand what that SCS is and, and, and can say firsthand how how real those moments are. And I think for me, it was probably 45 minutes, you know, and, 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 and that's, that's all that it can take. And um, if, if you know the symptoms, if you know the symptoms, you can recognize them in yourself. Yeah. You can recognize them in a friend. Uh, you can talk about it. Yeah. Are there any uh, sort of uh, physical symptoms or, or or maybe without having to go through those five questions that that, that can be warning signs yes. for friends or, or family or things that we can look out for? Symptoms and behaviors? Yeah. First, um, uh, people reveal those uh, um, without being asked. Mm. You just need to need to be able to, to listen and hear. People tell you about uh, the fact that they're trapped, they can't find no surgery. People tell you that they can't sleep. People tell you that they're in pain. And you just need to be able to listen and recognize. Like, I can't sleep because I keep thinking. Okay, my thoughts are so horrible, I cannot tell anyone. When I think about these things, it gives me headache. I feel like my head is going to explode. I mean, I can't believe that I'm being bullied with so much pain. So people tell you that. Um, And in terms of behavior... Uh, it's primarily uh, gradual social withdrawal and evasive communication. People stop being straight with you and, and, and uh, they are not as social as they used to be. Um, 
So that would be uh, that would be important. Another thing, uh, become more irritable and hypervigilant and jumpy uh, 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 and kind of restless also. That's part of the uh, what we call over arousal. Um, lack of pleasure. People don't like uh, uh, don't uh, for instance pe- uh, things that they like uh, uh, stop being pleasurable for them. That's also behavior. So um, all this is in uh, in my book in the first edition, and then the second edition is coming out next week. The most important thing is to recognize it. The second most important thing is to treat it. And uh, uh, current medications that we have already available, they work. I did it individually in many, many patients that I've seen. We just need uh, uh, to complete clinical trials uh, to make it happen and implement. How do you feel about just uh, medication in general? I know that I've been on and off antidepressants my whole life, and I think at times maybe I've I've been over-medicated, at times sort of under-medicated. I know it's a very polarizing issue. Are, are, Are you primarily in favor of medication, or, or where do you stand there? I'm in, in favor of medication. I'm not in favor um, of uh, not being fully transparent about what medication treatment does with patients. Specifically, uh, long-term treatment with medications um, results in dependency, and you cannot stop uh, uh, antidepressants, and it will be very, maybe very difficult after several months, even after years and even months. The long-term side effects. So uh, I am in favor of medications as a short-term tool to engage people in therapy that can restructure their life most of the time. And certainly I'm not in favor of internist prescribing mm-hmm. Prozac like aspirin. Yeah, I think I've definitely had had my share of, of especially when I was a teenager, uh, just being prescribed uh, ADHD, a medication, uh, Adderall or Vyvanse, and, and these things that I think really had a negative impact on my mental health. And then uh, I'm on a couple SSRIs now that that I've I've finally found my balance that that has really helped me. But I know that's been something that I've really struggled with, and 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 I think a lot of people really struggle with as as to. Should I get on medication? What's the right of medication? Feeling like you can really trust these doctors who are prescribing the medication, being able to understand it. Um, obviously, it works hand in hand with a talk therapy. But but if someone who is struggling with mental health, I guess, was just looking to get started or, or, or begin their mental health journey, what would you recommend as some as some first steps? Let's say uh, somebody who was just struggling and 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 maybe feeling some symptoms of depression or anxiety uh, but they've never really gone to therapy or aren't on any medication uh, and they don't know what to do what would you uh, recommend as as some first steps that they could do to start to work on their mental health Um, forgive me uh, for trumpeting my own horn Uh, come (laughs) to the family center Uh, because i mean it because the way we work is just as you described uh, whenever somebody comes here for the first time, we have both psychiatrist and a therapist. It's a two-hour assessment. The family is present. At that moment, uh, at the end of two hours, we decide 
what is the best course and what is the combination, what role uh, medications play, what role therapy plays, what is needed. And uh, there is an uh, action plan for the future for how long somebody is going to be in treatment and uh, how, um, how, how long they're going to stay on medications. And it's a very temporary measure. Unless somebody uh, has uh, 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 like a serious illness that um, makes them dysfunctional and incredibly painful at any time you stop the medication, mm -hmm. then medication is temporary. Well, we'll definitely be sure to uh, to share the link for your uh, family center and, and your books as well um, in the show notes. And, and I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing about your experience in mental health. I know you're a huge inspiration to us at Mad Happy, and I think that all the listeners as well will, will really find immense value in, in your work and, and what you had to say. So thank you so much for everything that you do and, and for joining us today, Doctor. Well, thank you for having me. And good luck to you. Thank you all so much for listening to this conversation with Mason and Dr. Gallagher. So many takeaways, so much to learn. I wanted to remind everybody to subscribe to the show if you're not already. If you're new here, this is a show where we have conversations about mental health every single week. And we're going to continue to do so throughout 2023. And we're excited about some upcoming guests that we have, some in-person recordings we're going to do, more video content, lots of exciting things to look forward to. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. The Mad Happy Podcast is brought to you by Optimism.